Well, good morning, everyone. I'm so glad to see you this morning at Four Corners Church. Uh, we're in the third week of a message series called Identity Thief, and um, you can follow along today uh, for part number four, it is, um, right here on your message notes. You got them when you came in if you want to grab that out. We have a big chunk of scripture to work through today that has just, uh, in a big way, uh, lit me on fire. Uh, but I thought it'd be appropriate if we just stopped and uh, prayed for just a moment. Would you do that with me? Father, thank you so much for your word. Today we acknowledge that we need you, um, that if you're not in it, we don't want to do it. Uh, Lord, today would you speak to us? Would you speak to us by your word? We come to you today as uh, disciples, as learners, as students. Uh, We do not have it figured out. We haven't arrived. We're not perfect. And so we come humbly with an open heart and an open mind to receive what you have from us or for us. Speak to us through your word. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. So one of the strangest ministry experiences I've ever had, uh, I'm going to tell you, but to do it, I've got to walk through the mud of deep personal insecurity to do it. So I'm going to do a little personal therapy up here with you for just a second, if that's okay. So years ago, we were in a borrowed church building. Um, we've been a, we were a mobile church for eight years. We were about 15 years old in a couple months now, but uh, we were in a borrowed church building because we didn't have enough money, momentum to get our own space. Um, We were 400 or so people at that time, and we had been in a theater, we had been in a high school, and we we had moved into a borrowed church building that is actually located right at the other end of Cox Road. So if you're at Tylersville and Cox and you go away from our church building, it kind of dead ends. There's a Dairy Queen and there's a church right in front of it. A lot of you were there with us during those days. The Zion Global Church owned that building. And then they they had two buildings on their property. And so we went to them one day and said, hey, we're being kicked out of our place over here. We don't have a home. Could we borrow your place for a month? They said, sure. In fact, why don't you take it for a whole year? A year became a few years. It was a wonderful thing. But one of the things that was interesting for me that I didn't anticipate living in the north suburbs of Cincinnati was that I'd one day find myself at a congregation begging to use their building. I didn't anticipate that. And I didn't anticipate that the congregation would be led and primarily made up by African-American Christians. No, that's just a reflection of me. I just never had it in my brain to think that that was ever going to happen. But it did. And God did such a beautiful thing, bringing this kind of white church. You understand that's mostly who's here, right? Um, uh, Our church makes up exactly the percentages of the people that come to our church from the local areas. And so we're mostly represented, uh, representing the demographics of our area, but this church had blown away the demographics sociologically, and we're mostly African-American. And they are wonderful, kind people, some of my best friends still. I love Pastor Freddie Pyphus. That's not the story. That's just the beginning of the story. We decided it would be really cool if one day we got together and we addressed the elephant in the room, which is, how do a white church and black church get together? They called it black, so you don't have to send me an email on that. That's what they called it. All right. I know there's debate. I know. I know. It's okay. I'm just using their nomenclature, all right? So what does it look like for a white church and black church to get together? Now, I'm out of my league. I did grow up in Chicago, so I have a little bit of thug. I do. Um, But then I spent from age 11 on in southeast Tennessee, so I'm a redneck. That's a bad combo, friends. So here we are, and I mean, their heart, their generosity is on display, some of the most kind, and we did some cool stuff together, but we decided we would hold a joint service, and we'd go directly at the divisions that exist within the body of Christ. Sounds awesome, right? So we're about three months out from the event. I sit down with Pastor Freddie, 
And I say, all right, so what are we going to do? Because, you know, I got my notebook, I got my calendar, I've got my checklist that we're going to populate. And he says, then the Spirit will lead us. I said, I know, I know, and they're going to be great. So what are we going to do? And he said, the Spirit will lead us, Ben. Okay. Well, what are you thinking we should talk about? Well, I think we should talk about, you know, the unity in the body of Christ and getting together great. So how do you see the service going? I thought we would do some music and prayer. Now, I'm going to tell you, those are all the right answers, but that's not what I'm looking for. I'm looking for something that reflects my bias, my culture. And in church work, it's very obvious around here, we're pretty scheduled. We're pretty walk through the program. And I like to know what's coming up before I'm up and what's going to happen when I leave. So I'm just, I said, all right. In my mind, we're not getting, you know, we're not getting anywhere. We'll do another meeting. <clears throat> I'll come back. I'll shoot a couple emails. That's how this will go. Now, don't get me wrong. Their church is bigger than ours. Their management is, in some ways, better than ours, more advanced than ours. And it's just very different, all right? Just different, not, not right or wrong. And the Lord is going to teach me something pretty powerful here, honestly. So I come to the second meeting, and I said, all right, had a couple weeks to think. I love it. So I got so far. We're going to do some music. We're going to do some praying. We're going to do some preaching. Duh. All right, I didn't say duh, but of course we are. So how's that going to go? What songs do you think we're going to do? Because, you know, your musicians, our musicians, your choir, our people. We don't have a choir. Our people, uh, we're going to do the thing together. And so we landed on a couple songs. I'm like, this is progress. Thank you, Jesus. But my part is speaking, and we're going to share the stage. Now, we have a friendship. So if we have to wing it, fine. But I'd like to know what we're going to say and where we're going to go. And he says, Ben, the, the Spirit will lead us. Okay. So no kidding, I called a third meeting. And I didn't get any further in meeting three than I did in meeting one. So I, at the third meeting, I came to him and I said, here's, here's what I'm going to do. Here's what I'm going to do. And here's the outline we're going to follow. Okay. So you feel the tension. So let me tell you, and I say, not only is this awkward and new and different, all my insecurities are just like wrestling in my heart. Like, am I going to get up and like look like an idiot? First of all, Freddie is talented. I mean, he sings, he can sit at a piano and play, and he's just got a voice that was like made for radio. Remember some of you when radio was awesome? Remember that? And some people had a voice and they, they just... That, <laughs> I don't, and, and so I'm just feeling very insecure, and I'm, I'm kind of grabbing onto structure to give me a, some sense of security, safety blanket, and I have no idea what he's going to say. So I've given him my three points, because I, I have them, and, um, <laughs> and we're kind of chuckling about it. And he's not being silly, he's just being him, right? So I want to tell you how he starts his portion of the message. I'm going to try to do it like him. It's going to fall short, but here we go. I do my part, he's going to do his part, I'm going to close. So I do my part, and I'll be honest, I give it a solid A-. minus. Honestly, I, that's pretty good, honestly. I pulled out some of my best stuff. And uh, stuff I had tried in other environments, and uh, it seemed to get a good reaction. And unlike you guys, they were kind of talking back to me while I was talking. So I'm like, 
I'm in. I'm good. You know, this is fine. See, you hear all that insecurity and ego. I mean, just a mess in here. So he gets up and he says this. He says, first words out of his mouth. Humpty Dumpty. Now I'm sitting on the front row. I'm like, oh, Jesus. What, 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 what's going on? And then he says, again, mm, Humpty Dumpty. And I'm looking around to see if anybody else is having the same reaction I am, which is, I trust you, bro, but I have no idea where you're going. And I got to close after this. I should have had you close, then I could. And then he says, what was he sitting on that wall for anyway? It's a good question. But what's interesting, when he said Humpty Dumpty, eight people in the church went, amen. (laughs) I ain't going to lie. I have no idea what that means. But in two words that I have no context for, he has surpassed all of the verbal affirmation I had received in 10 minutes of preaching. So I'm just like, I am a bundle of nerves. Just a bundle of nerves. And then he begins to unpack the point that I'm going to try to unpack for you today. That there exist these walls in the body of Christ, between Christians, in families, in marriages, They're there. They're going to be there. They're going to be there as long as the world exists until Jesus comes back and makes everything perfect. But that's not the problem. The problem is, what are we doing hanging around the walls? Why are we sitting on them? Why are they our walls? And if we're not careful, you know where he went with this. Perfect preaching, man. If we're not careful, we're going to fall. And if we're not careful, all the work of all the king's men and all the king's... It's not going to put us back together because what has to happen is a spiritual shift has to work. It was brilliant. It was brilliant, and he preached me under the table, and then I still had to get up and close, and I let's pray. It's time for prayer. (laughs) It's time for prayer. We don't know what else to do. Pray. Never a bad thing. And he went to this passage here in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 11. It's a brilliant passage, and it's been applicable to the church ever since it was written 2,000 years ago, ever since the Apostle Paul had left his church that he loved deeply. And he wrote back to them while he's in prison, never more than a few feet away from a Roman guard, and he says, I want to tell you my heart for you. My heart for you is that you would experience deep hope and walk with deep joy as a son or daughter of the king. You're no longer dead, you're alive. We spent the last couple weeks talking about that. And I want the eyes of your heart to be open so that you can really see what's going on. And he establishes that. And then last week, he says, I want you to know what it is to be genuinely saved. I want you to have a but God kind of experience. Present In verse 11 of chapter 2, he's going to start dealing with issues that were present in the Ephesian church. And God, because he's sovereign and in control, made sure that this document that was, in Paul's mind, I'm sure just a letter to that church, and he probably knew it was going to be read in other churches because that was already happening then, but I don't know that he knew that 2,000 years later we'd be looking at this text, but the Holy Spirit did. The Holy Spirit inspired him, preserved this text, 
so that we could read it and we could discover that in some ways the issues we have are not new. The Bible speaks to them actually quite brilliantly over and over and over again. It's not that it's new, and it's not that the Bible doesn't speak. It's that often we don't engage the text enough really to understand that so many of the problems that exist in churches and families and friendships, the Bible speaks actually quite candidly to. And these dividing walls, like with Pastor Freddie and Zion Global Church and our church that exist in the culture, but we're trying to deal with them, they are only met ultimately with spiritual insight and empowerment from the Holy Spirit and ultimately obedience to the word of God as we submit ourselves to this mission called the church. And yet it's incredibly complex. In one sense, it's like a lot of things in life. It's not that simple to state a few principles. That's actually pretty simple and clear, and almost everybody will agree. Racism, bad. Of course. Of course it is. Now, how? Division in the church, bad. Yep, nobody disagrees. How? Separation in a marriage, physically or emotionally, ultimately, bad. But how do we go about this? So Paul writes as a guy who loves these people dearly, and he has this beautiful way of just speaking with incredible candor and grace. But nobody, nobody's wondering what Paul's saying here. So if you don't mind, look at your uh, sermon notes on the screen, in your Bible if you want. <clears throat> I'll be looking on the ones I printed. I have a Bible with me always. I keep getting a Bible with bigger and bigger text but I still have to print it on paper because I can't see a thing. All right, here we go. <laughs> Ephesians 2.11. Therefore, now he's just talked about what it is to be in Christ. We are alive. We've had but God experiences. The incomparable riches of his grace are available in kindness to us from Christ Jesus. Beautiful. So in light of all this, therefore, remember that formally, you who are Gentiles by birth, and I've got a few dots in there, not to hide anything, but he's going to go to a cultural phenomenon involving body parts that separate Gentiles from Israelites, all right? The details are irrelevant to us. There was just physical markers of divide. They were made by human hands. They aren't specific to God's design of the human body. They were made by human hands, and they were signals of the division, so if you were Jews, you had these markings. If you weren't Jews, you didn't have these markings. And as a result, everybody kind of knew, both by the markings that we could look at, but also by the culture, by the food we eat, by the way we do things. And all the original followers of Jesus were Jewish. But Paul was uniquely called to spread the gospel about Jesus away from just the Jewish people who had everything in common, same history, same background, same culture, same diet, same rules, move it away from that and bring it larger to the world. The name of our church, Four Corners, comes from the moment in the book of Acts where the apostle Peter has a vision of a sheet being let down from heaven, like a bed sheet, gathered up by its, here we go, four corners. And in the vision, the four corners are undone and the vision's meaning is, is that the gospel now is going to go to every corner of the earth. That's where we get our name, 
four corners, that God would use us to spread the gospel. Isn't that cool? A little history lesson there. So Paul, though, is uniquely the apostle that God's going to use to do that. So when he does that, all these natural, understandable, historically verifiable and explainable walls exist. They're there. But because they're there, the church can't walk in power and it can't walk in unity. You don't have to care about church today. Maybe you don't care about church at all. But imagine your family. Some of you grew up in a family that had all the markings of health and vitality, at least viewed externally. But if you got in or you grew up in a home like that, perhaps, you realized that while there was some semblance of unity and togetherness, there was an awful lot of fraction and division. And because of those dynamics, the family never was really all that it could have been. That's true to some degree in my family. It's true in every family. Unity is a wonderful idea, of course. How? There's the problem. How do you bring people with different backgrounds, opinions, diverse ideas together to do one thing well together? And what Paul was trying to do to just let the cat out of the bag is to remind everybody, no matter their backgrounds, their differences, their uniquenesses, the walls that separate, that in Christ we're one. And there's actually significant power in unity. So let me give you a brief, I gave you a brief history lesson. Let me give you a brief theology lesson. This is true, by the way. In the New Testament, if you want to know what's important in the New Testament, one of the ways you can decide that is you can take all the verses that deal with the subject and put them in a line. So if you put all the verses in the New Testament that deal with the various subjects that are arisen, you begin to see that some subjects get a lot of attention and some get only a little bit of attention. That's an indicator of what's important. Those things that are repeatedly shared, they're important. That's why every gospel has the resurrection. It's the central part of the story. And the book of Acts opens with the resurrection. And all but two New Testament books mention the resurrection. We know the resurrection is important to Christianity. No resurrection, no Christianity. But if you take all the subjects, you know the two most important subjects in the New Testament by amount of attention given to them? The first one, Jesus Christ is the Son of God. He's unique in history, and there's no access to the Father other than through Jesus, which is completely politically incorrect. It's just true, all right? Number one, who is Jesus? Why is he unique? Most documents, most verses right there. You know the number one, two most important Subject in the New Testament as measured by content given to it? Unity in the body of Christ. That's number two. Number two. Unity in the body of Christ. Now, you don't have to care anything about the church to understand the power of unity. But if you care about the church at all, if you've been around for any length of time, you understand that this is a challenge. It was for Ephesus, and it is for North Cincinnati. It always will be, by the way. That's not the problem. The problem is, is how do we keep a lack of unity that will probably always be there from keeping us pursuing in power and strength and effectiveness the mission that we have as a church and a family? How do we keep the different opinions and perspectives and experiences from keeping us walking in love and affirmation, and joy with one another. You see how that works in a family? Isn't that the challenge? 
I love doing weddings, just before we get to the, to the text. I love doing weddings. Um, there's so much emotion at a wedding, and I love it. But just think, for, I don't want to be like cynical at all, but it's one of the reasons why marriage has fallen on hard times in the Lord's church these days. Imagine the, 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 the real tensions present. And everybody acts to some degree like they don't understand it or know that these tensions are present, but just let me paint a picture for you. In a wedding, there is a... Um, a minister, often, I guess, at least in the church, it could be a, a judge, I suppose, but there's a minister. And then there's a, a bride and a groom. I mean, without that, there's no, no wedding, right? So there, there we go. And then in the United States and other places, there's witnesses because there's some contractual stuff. So you get the picture? Here, here's what we do. I say to them, do you promise? Are you ready for these words? Now, those of you that have been married more than five years, let's do a little quick check. Love. Check. Honor. Oh, crap. <laughs> Cherish. You know? Sickness and in health, for richer, for poorer, and better. For you, you see, I know, and a handful of people in the audience will know, that these folks are about to make a promise, and they are sincere. And they mean it to the tip of their toes, don't they? And they're happy. And it's awesome. And the words they say are rich and meaningful and clear, actually. I mean, that's not that, it's not that ambiguous what's said. But everybody knows that probably already and certainly in the next few weeks, maybe in a few hours. Come on, I've heard some stories. That those promises that were so readily embraced and easily spoken, I mean, sometimes voices crack, but it's not because they're hesitant. They're not like, I don't know, maybe, yeah, okay, yeah. I've never heard that. Never heard that. I do. I do, I love you so much. And it's like all, and, and yet we all know that while it is sincere, it is so much easier to make the promise than to live it out, isn't it? Isn't it? Let me ask you one. Were you lying when you said yes? By the way, I've done a couple weddings where they were. Like one was already having an affair. Oh my goodness. Like, first of all, you ruined my stats, bro. I was doing really well as a pastor with very few divorces. Now I have to actually get on the side of your repentance or your divorce. All right, so that's, that's not, that's, see, I make it all about me. That's what I do. I do. I make it all about me. But really, I'm just so sad for her, right? That happens. But most of the time, there's genuineness, there's sincerity, but you know, I know, it's going to be uphill. You're never far away in your marriage from a little uphill. And you're never far away on a sports team who have to work together to get the, the points. You know? You're never far away from a little uphill work. And in a church, you're never far away from a little uphill work. And so Paul, who loves them deeply, has only a good heart for them, has a deep investment and wants to protect it. He's going to help them understand. And he's going to spend a lot of time in his writings, over 13 different pieces of literature in the New Testament, dealing with unity. And what's interesting, his goal is not the unity per se. Now, that seems interesting. I've been talking all about unity, and I'm saying that's really not the goal. Unity is actually the result of pursuing the goal. And I would suggest to you 
That's actually true in every group of people. Unity on a team doesn't happen when everybody gets together at the huddle and says, let's be unified. Break. I, I don't play sports, but I would imagine that's really not the way huddles go. Let's all be unified. Go. No. What they do is they say, here's what we're going to do. This is the way we're going to do it. You're going to go over here, and you're going to go over here, and I'm going to go over here. Break. And then they go do the thing together, and when they do the thing together and they run the plan together, everybody walks back and goes, that was awesome. And the undercurrent of the joy is always, we did this together. And unity happens. The enemy of your marriage, your soul, the church, is very successful at making unity a goal so that anything that threatens unity, we automatically go, big problems. No, 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 no. No. You're never more than a few feet away from an uphill struggle for unity anytime two people have to do something important together. That's normal. It will never not be that way. In fact, God's going to use that struggle to purify and perfect your marriage. If you let him, your family, and your church, and if God cares about sports at all, I guess your sports team. I don't think he does. You can send me that email, will at fourcornerschurch.com. All right? But that's what he, the goal isn't unity. Unity is what happens when everybody does the goal. When a husband follows the goal that the Lord sets before, that the marriage would look like the love God has for the church. And a husband says, I'm on board with the plan. And so what I'm going to do is I'm going to serve you like Christ served the church. I'm going to be a great disciple, and I'm going to serve you, and I'm going to love you, and I'm going to prefer you. He doesn't say, I'm going to be unified to you all the time. Now, some people do, and it's not wrong. Unity is a result. It's not the goal. But when unity's there, you can know often that you're hitting the goal, right? So I'm going I'm to be a great disciple because, first of all, I'm submitted to Christ. Secondly, I'm submitted to the purpose of Christ for this marriage. So the whole submission in marriage begins, the man says, with me, submitting to Christ, submitting to your good, submitting to serving you, preferring you above me. I'm your servant, just like Christ served the church. So he's on play. And the wife looks at her husband and says, I'm going to do my best to be a great disciple. And I'm going to bring that to this marriage. And the Bible tells me every time the Bible speaks to a wife, honor and respect and uh, come under the authority of your husband. Every time the Bible speaks to a wife, it says that in the New Testament. So y'all can deal with that and make an argument about it. But it's just the facts. So a wife says, I want to be a disciple. I'm going to submit to the authority of my husband willingly. He doesn't force it in me. I do it as unto the Lord Knowing that there's all kinds of provisos and provisions, of course, blah, blah, blah. Bible speaks to all that. But at the end of the day, I'm on play to honor you, respect you. That's what I'm here for. And when both of them do that, guess what happens? They can, biblically speaking. Now, if you don't agree with the Bible's plans, this is a problem for you. right? But biblically speaking, at that point now, they can do the marriage together as unto the Lord. Because the Lord is actually setting the goals. That's what's happening. And what will happen then is they will walk in. Are you ready for this word? It's so powerful. They will walk in unity. But what happens when the man deeply wants to be respected? Because every man wants to be respected. And the wife goes, 
Oh, no, no. Here's my primary goal. You're going to know that nobody's going to treat me as a doormat. Now, let's be clear. Nobody should treat a wife as a doormat. That's not biblical. But if that's what you lead with, and that's the primary filter by which you engage everything, I'm just going to submit to you, we're headed in an interesting direction. So you're welcome to disagree with me. I'm just telling you what the Bible says, all right? Now, think about a church. The Lord says the church has a mission to bring the gospel to the world. That's the mission. So we're going to live as disciples who are being discipled, and we're going to be committed to the mission of the church. So I both get the benefit and I'm to give it out because saved people serve people. Found people find people. People who have been raised from death to life, what they do is they help other people be raised from death to life. So I get it, but I'm also on board. And what happens when the mission stays central? Everybody has a chance who's a part of a local church to be a part of what God's doing. When the mission isn't central, other things take priority. And when other things take priority, what happens is unity is not achieved. Remember, unity is not the goal. But when there's unity, power, effectiveness, deep joy can happen. So Paul says, here's my heart for you, churches. Walk in unity. Here's my heart for you, marriages. Walk in unity. And you want to walk in unity, remember what you were called to, what your purpose is. So look at how he walks that out here. Therefore, remember that formerly you who were Gentiles by birth, remember that at the time you were separated from Christ, you were excluded, Gentiles. You were foreigners to the covenants of the promise without hope and without God in the world. On the bottom of your message notes, number one, before Christ, there's one category of people, Jew and Gentile alike, and that is sinner. That's your first blank. So one of the reasons why we push through these walls is because we all start at the same place. We're all sinners. Then verse 13, he echoes words that we found earlier in the chapter. But now in Christ, this is similar to our but God from last week. But now in Christ, Jesus, you who once were far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. So you were foreigners, you were aliens. You don't look like Jews, you don't act like Jews. But you were brought near to Christ anyway. Look at verse 14. For he himself is our peace. What does his peace look like? He has made the two groups one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall. Humpty Dumpty. The dividing wall of, thank you, of hostility. I'm counting that against the score from a few years ago. I'm, I'm gaining ground. Verse 15. His purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace and in one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross by which he put to death their hostility. On either side of the wall, there can be hostility. There's hostility in marriages. There's hostility in church. But God tears down those walls and he, in fact, becomes the peace. How does it become the peace? By tearing down walls. You ever seen a wall torn down? I, I like to build. Part of what reason I like to build is it usually begins with destroying things. Tearing down walls is not a peaceful process. 
in a big city, it's a big wrecking ball. A lot of fun. They clear, clear the space because when we start tearing down walls, if we're not careful, there's going to be collateral damage. If you and your wife, you and your husband decide you want to tear down walls in your marriage, it may not be a pretty process. It's interesting. You, you hear the juxtaposition? He is our peace. Wow, what a beautiful picture. And he did it by tearing down the walls. Uh-oh. Now, if I just read those words and I don't reflect on them, it doesn't strike me how difficult this might be, but it is. So he himself became our peace. He tore down the dividing wall and reconciled us both through the cross by which he put to death their hostility. And he came and he preached peace to you who are far away and peace to those who are near. For through him, we both have access to the Father by one spirit. So there's Christ, the Father, and the Spirit, the Trinity. They're all present. They work in perfect unity because they do. They're incredibly effective to see the plan of God move forward. Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people and also members of his household. You know why I keep talking about family so much? Because it's God's preferred way to talk about the church. He is the Father. We're the family. So second blank, in Christ, there's one category of people, family, God's family. And before you start throwing stones at the church, it's easy to do. I got it. But the church is simply the spiritual family. And all the silliness in your family, all of it, and you got it, friends. And if you don't think you do, I want to be clear with you, you're the problem in your family. And everybody's sitting and talking about you at Thanksgiving that you weren't invited to. That's the truth. If you don't see that your family's messed up a bit, you're the problem. All right? There's a reason why family and God's family, physical family and the church are so intertwined in the scripture. Because we learn about the other from the other. They're the two primary institutions that God started in this world. Both of them have the same purpose. The redemption of the world. When God wanted to bring redemption to the world, he started with one man, Abraham, and he said, I'm going to raise up for you a generation, and the whole world's going to be blessed, and I'm going to reconcile the world to myself through you. Started with family. He didn't start with the church. And then in Christ, he decided, follow the metaphor. It's biblical. I'm not making it up. That he was going to graft in. He was going to adopt other people into his family who don't have the DNA of Abraham. That's what he decided he would do. And so we're called brothers and sisters. But all the family dynamics are there. I'm never inviting any of you to a family reunion. You know why? Because while I love many and many of these people, some of them embarrass me to death. And then you would know about why I have my certain proclivities and weirdnesses and all that. And I'm just too insecure to have you have a front row seat to my family. Because truthfully, love you all. But we got our stuff, Right? But you got it too. And can I be honest? Four Corners is a pretty good church family. But we're not perfect. We're not. In fact, if you need a perfect church, I'm going to give you a really good piece of advice. Make this your last Sunday here. And if you need a perfect pastor, seriously, you're wasting time here. Truthful, right? If my wife has to have a perfect husband in order to feel fulfilled as a wife, as a woman, as a person. She's wasting her time. 
So we can get frustrated all about the weirdness in church. Of course. And some of it should be engaged. We're going to talk about that in just a second. But at the end of the day, a little honesty to yourself would probably give you a little bit of ground to begin to engage the walls with humility. This is exactly what Paul said. Let's remember, you guys were foreigners, aliens, cut off. You're way over there. God brought you near. Now, implied, let's let that being brought near give you a little bit of grace as you engage the walls and the people in this church. <laughs> you think you got it all figured out? Let's remember, you were a sinner. How, how much of a sinner? You were actually dead and couldn't save yourself. And God brought you grace. You know what the Bible says we're supposed to forgive the people that hurt us? It's not because they deserve it. It's not because we're kind. It's not because it's good and it's helpful. No, no, no. We forgive, biblically speaking, because we were forgiven. You see how it works? If you believe you were forgiven, it's a little easier to forgive. If you believe you were on the outside and God brought you near, it's a little easier to bring somebody from the outside near. If you don't believe that, though, it's very difficult to let somebody from the outside near. Do you see the, the challenge? So Paul's trying to remind everybody, I like to say it this way, the ground at the cross is level. I have no reason to boast. You have no reason to boast. You didn't save yourself. I didn't save myself. And if we don't get this right, we'll never have effective engagement of our mission and purpose. Shorthand it, we'll never have unity. And so that's why it's such a big deal. And the enemy of your soul and of your marriage and of your life and of your mind and of the Lord's church is very good at making the gaps in unity so pervasive that people forget What's really going on? So in a marriage, he pits a husband against a wife over some issue with the kids. And of course, what the kid needs more than anything is for a husband and wife to love each other as Christ loved the church and to submit to one another as under Christ and to honor and respect as under Christ. That's what that child needs more than anything. But they'll argue to the death of their marriage for some good for the kids. But the truth is it was never about the kids. It's some power play. No unity. If they could remember, he is called to love and serve, and she is called to respect, to honor, and partner with and be a helpmeet. That's just Bible. So don't bother me, all right? I'll help you understand it and unpack it, but we're not arguing what the Bible says. Not here. You go to another church for that. They, they, are, they debate those things all the time. Who should get married? Who shouldn't get married? Whether it's okay to be married? Not here. And if we don't get those very simple things right, it's very difficult to get the more complex things right. Like, what does a healthy church look like? What does healthy conflict resolution look like? When walls are erected, what does it mean for God to come in and be a people who wrecks the wall? What does that look like? We don't want to do it. Paul says if you don't do it, you're going to miss everything. So consequently, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people and members of his household, built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, 
with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. Now, this gets lost in us because we don't work with our hands as much typically. Some of you do, and you're, you'll zoom in, zoom in on this quickly. It's a building. It's a cornerstone. When they built the pyramids, the first stone laid was not in the middle, and they built around it. No, it was a corner piece that was set that marked the boundary, and everything else is measured off the cornerstone. 90-degree angle this way, 90-degree angle this way, And when that was right, then the other stones could be fit together and they could find their place. So Jesus is the cornerstone. In the building, there are people who have responsibilities. In this case, it's prophets and apostles. That's the ones that are mentioned. There's others, but it's just the way God's building the building. Later on in Ephesians chapter 4, he's going to tell us the purpose of apostles, pastors, teachers, evangelists, He's going to tell us the purpose. And honestly, this will blow your mind when we get there in a couple weeks. But they're all there. And the rest of us, we are, he's off the family metaphor, we're bricks in the building. It's really cool. But what's the cornerstone by which we measure our placement? Now we're back to the unity principle. The way we measure our placement and our our fitness into the thing is simply... Jesus, the cornerstone. If we do that, then we know if we fit or not. If we're in our right place, if we're in alignment, if structurally we can hold the weight that is coming as other things are piled upon, as the structure gets bigger. But the cornerstone is set and secure. But the problem is, how many of you have ever been around like uh, houses being built? Some, I was in a uh, our small group the other night, they were in a relatively new house. I didn't ask them this question because I wasn't thinking, but I wish I'd have said this. Do you remember when you came into the house for the first time and there was like a knock list? Like it's all the stuff you had to get done, right? That's a normal thing in a house. Like all the stuff that was almost done, but it's not. So you create a list and before you make your final payment, there, there it is. But the other thing that often happens is usually in most construction sites, there was a delivery, let's say a brick house, a delivery of bricks, and most of them were put in place in the building. But usually somewhere out back, they've either buried it or there's a pile of bricks that didn't make the cut. <laughs> there's a handful. Of, you know what I'm talking about? Have you seen this? Like there's a pile of bricks. If you have a new house, I bet you somewhere on the property, there's a handful of bricks. Right? Now, they don't like to have a lot left over because it's expensive, but there's a handful of bricks that don't make the cut. These bricks are fit together, serving their purpose. They're part of the structure. It's part of the joy of having a home. These bricks are in the backyard, kind of lonely orphans, and maybe you build a fire pit out of them later. I don't know. And if you're trying to, like, do a lawn, like, you, so let's say you're not in a high-end subdivision where they do it all for you, like, you're trying to now do a lawn, and so, like, you start trying to, so you got to pull some of those rocks and bricks out of the ground because they're just left there. This is the problem of not being connected to the family of God if you're a believer. There are a lot of reasons why bricks aren't connected in. But at the end of the day, I want to skip down to chapter 3, verse 10, and explain to you what God was trying to do with the church in the last couple minutes that we have. All this stuff of tearing down the walls and bringing Jews and Gentiles together, making this family, was in verse 10 of chapter 3. His intent was that now, through the church, look at this beautiful language. The manifold wisdom of God, that is the wisdom of God on display, 
should be made known to the rulers and authorities in heavenly realms according to his eternal purpose that he accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord. Simply unpacked. What God was trying to do to the church was, uh, through the church was to astound the world and make people in the highest places sit up and take notice what God was doing in the church. Think about what he does. He brings people from various backgrounds, different cultures, different ways of eating food, a lot of that in the New Testament, in our modern ways, different music styles, different preaching styles, learning styles. He brings them all together, and in unity, they accomplish great things. And when they do, the world stands up and goes, whoa, how did that happen? Now, nobody is surprised at a political convention when everybody's cheering at the same point. Why? Because they're already on the same page. So they get their favorite candidate up, now with scripts, and they preach the points, and everybody's, woo! And it's like 10,000 people. Nobody's impressed that 10,000 people are cheering. You're all already on the same page. The only people impressed are the people who are cheering along with them. But nobody from the other political party goes, look at how awesome they're unified around their points. They don't do that. You know Why? Because it's not impressive to get a group of people together who all have the same values, backgrounds, and opinions to do anything. That's why one side of a stadium, everybody cheering when their team's doing well, it's not impressive. They're already on board. You know what's impressive? Get a bunch of people with different backgrounds, economics, histories, sin lists, hopes, dreams, ambitions, colors. Get them together where there's no homogeny. And see if they can't do something pretty powerful. That's actually quite impressive. And that's what the church does. It allows people with all kinds of silliness in their background, all kinds of awesomeness in their background, but not a whole lot of commonality, get together and together, because they can't do it alone, they do something beautiful. So, Final couple points in your message notes. The power of the gospel is on display whenever people that have little in common function as a unit. It's on display. You were dead, you've been brought to life. Not only were you brought to life, you were joined together in this body, this family, this building. And you operated together to do great things. A few uh, days ago, I was in India, and the girls were standing uh, on the stage, the ones that we support, the orphans there, and it was such a touching thing, and uh, Baba Bruce Heron was standing there, and I got this awesome picture of him looking at them, and he, his eyes are filled with tears, and one, one of the family members of Pastor James walked up to uh, one of our leaders and said to them, Four Corners Church, he was pointing at the girls, this is, and he said, this is you. You did this. And when I heard that story, I just, my heart melted. My eyes like filled up with tears. And I just thought, yeah, no one person could have done this. But people with different backgrounds, different experiences, some with ugly church stuff, some with ugly family stuff, but who have been redeemed by Christ, who were dead but made alive, joined together with the mission of the church. And we fed and clothed and housed and brought security and education to a bunch of kids. Wow. Wow, that's powerful. If you guys all get together and celebrate your team win, I'll be honest, I'm not that impressed. Don't care. You get together, though, from various backgrounds, and, do, and you together 
do something that's impressive. This is what makes the world take notice. This is the manifold mystery of God that he would bring various people together, graft them in, adopt them, make them part of the family. And this is why Paul consistently will tell us in this book, fight for anything that protects unity and go aggressively after anything that threatens it. I would encourage you to do that in your marriage. If your kids try to come between you and your spouse, give them a metaphorical beatdown and perhaps a slight spanking as well. It's not worth it. Your unity is the thing that will bring your family together and do great things together. If you're a coach, I'd encourage you. You got one player that won't play along? Okay, they're really talented. I got it. I got it. Dad's really, you know, going to make a stink. Got it. Good luck with unity, which brings effectiveness, power, and deep joy to everybody. Deal with it. You got to deal with it. You got to deal with it in your marriage. You got to deal with it on a sports team. You have to deal with it in the church. It's the number two most frequently raised topic in the New Testament. Because without it, power, effectiveness, and joy can't be maintained. So I hope, I hope that you would start to take some rest and joy in the fact that God can do something. And I want to end with a very simple sentence. We need you. Four Corners Church needs you. I, I can't do it. If we're going to be the manifold wisdom of God on display to the world in a way that they take notice, it has to be a group of very disjointed people coming together to do something powerful and profound. And so last week, I told you how that we took a few dollars and we fed a bunch of hungry kids at lunch. And we gave them meals that were enjoyable and not shameful. This week, I want to tell you just briefly about the fact that we're going to recruit a group of men and women to help single parents and to help people who are struggling and widows because these are close to the heart of God, have, the, have an ability to have a handful of their normal expenses met by people's kindness and generosity in the church. I'll tell you the details next week. And where in the past we've only been serving other organizations, really, and a handful of things up close, this next year, because of your Christmas offering, when we all come together, what's going to happen is we're going to begin to serve in more dramatic and definitive ways here out of our own church family. And we'll do it together or we won't do it. And it's going to be beautiful. Why don't you grab out your Connect cards? Let's take a step together. <clears throat> I know I left a couple blanks. I'm doing that for my own um, insecurities because I like to check off all the check marks and fill in all the blanks, but we're going to see what happens here. But if you really want to know, email me. I'll send them to you. All right. Because <laughs> I just, I, yeah, I feel bad. All right. So next step A um, says, today I'm making Jesus my Savior and Lord. If you don't yet have a relationship, if, if you're like the metaphor, you're one of the bricks out there, but you're not connected, very simple. He will tear down the wall between you and him. He's already done the work. He did the work on the cross and in his resurrection. Because of that, you are welcomed all the way and you're grafted in, you're adopted. Take your pen, check next step A. It says, today I'm making Jesus my Savior and Lord. Pray with me in a minute. Say, God, save me. I can't save myself. I trust not anything else other than the work you did for me. 
I trust that that will secure my relationship with you. Our next step be today, I'm going to be uh, committing to getting baptized. December 8th and February 9th are our next baptism dates. It's a great day around here when people get baptized. And we celebrate the fact that you were dead and raised to new life, like Paul's been talking about in Ephesians. Next step, C says, would you pray this prayer morning for our church? Father, help our church to grow deeper and wider and stronger together. We want to go deeper and wider and stronger together. Would you pray for that every morning this week? And the next step, D, please send me the link to sign up for Grow classes. So the next one, next week, November 24th, is the fourth one because it's the fourth week of the month. And this is about understanding your mission and your call in the world. And um, so many of you are walking in it, and yet you don't have joy about it. We're going to help you have joy. Some of you don't know it. And you need to discover it, and we're going to help you discover it. Some of you just need to be affirmed along the way. This class uh, does all of that, so check the box. And then finally, next step, he says, hey, I'd love to stay for lunch and help decorate our church next Sunday, November 24th. We're getting ready for Christmas and all the guests we're going to have. So if you want to be a part of that, check the box. We're ready to have some lunch for you, and we can dole out all the work so that we can walk, uh, work together and get this big task done, all right? Why don't you set that aside? If you call this church home, let me give you a chance to give back to God a portion of what he's blessed you with. Um, you know, every week I think I say the same thing. I, I'm grateful for your generosity. But let, let me tell you something that I was reminded of this week. And one of my, one of my favorite modern-day Christian leaders, the guy named Kevin DeYoung, um, I don't necessarily agree with everything he says, but recently I was reminded on a Facebook post somebody put uh, about a quote that he gave. And the, the, quote, the quote said this, that the mission of the church, I'm talking about mission, it's not buildings, it's not property, it's not, you know, um, the various designs that we do in a space? Of course not. The mission of the church is that God is building something with people. And it's true. And yet every week I get up and I talk about the fact that we're going to spend money on a building and we're going to pay bills and we're going to pay salaries. And so it'd be sometimes easy to miss the fact that the building, even the staff, me, what we pay for, the curriculum we use, the toilet paper in the bathroom, the pen on your seat, the coffee you drink this morning, that's not our mission. Those are tools. And around here, it's clear that you believe investing in tools to do our mission is important. But I want to make sure that you don't forget what the mission is. Our mission here is people. And when we raise money to pay for things like lights and air conditioning and heat and seats and new adult space that's going to open most likely next week, a new student space that just opened. We do that because we believe in people, not buildings. We don't believe in programs here. Programs serve people. And that's a big deal to us. So thank you for giving us the tools we need to do the work that God has called us to do. Let's pray right now. Father, thank you so much for your word. I pray, Lord, that you would make us deeper you would make us wider and you'd make us stronger. And I pray, Father, that all of us would have the humility to walk towards unity, that all of us would remember that you have done so much for us. How could we withhold anything from anybody that you're calling? Father, now would you take our gifts, would you take our next steps and cause them to go far and wide for your kingdom? God, I want to thank you for great tools to do ministry. But Lord, most of all, I want to thank you that you're changing lives here. I thank you that you've changed my life because of this church family. And I pray, Lord, you would keep in front of us the mission we have to walk in the power of the gospel. We pray it in the name of Jesus, the strong and holy Son of God. Amen.